1: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here today on the New Books Network for the Archaeology Channel talking to Douglas Hunter. He's been, uh, I've interviewed him before for uh, the Native American Studies Channel, actually, But today, instead of uh, the New American Studies channel, we're going to be on the Archaeology channel discussing his uh, new book, published last year, Beardmore, The Viking Hoax That Rewrote History. It's published by McGill, Queen's University Press. Again, it came out last year. Dr. Hunter, welcome back to, I guess, the show, but I guess new to the Archaeology channel. Yeah, thanks for having me on this one. Uh, So Beardmore, can you first... uh, discuss this the selection of your cover um i think it's pretty clear what the cover is all about but can you just discuss address the cover just a bit
1: if you have a good publisher they do
0: the cover designs for you i've done a lot of graphic design in my life
1: even the books i've designed i didn't do my own covers so uh, dave drummond at mcgill queens did it and i had no idea what they were going to do i arranged you know to have some the obvious stuff pictures of the sword and whatnot available and um, Dave came up with an interesting concept of almost like pieces of evidence of, of a picture of the broken sword and a couple pieces of paper, you know, as if they're laid out, you know, and you're trying to put all the pieces together, which literally is what the work was in doing this. It was really a detective story, but it became a detective story about a detective story, if I can put it that way. So I, I thought he did a great job.
0: So how and why did you come to study the history of the Viking Beardmore relics, including the broken sword, the axe head, and shield handle handle at the Royal Ontario Museum?
1: Well, it came out of, um, I'm sure I'd heard the story before. I I mean, I must have. Uh, It's a notorious hoax that happened at the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum, which is one of the great archaeological museums in the world. It's the Provincial Public Museum in Toronto for the province of Ontario. And I was working on my doctoral dissertation, Um, which led to the book The Place of Stone. And I was looking in a very broad basket sense at a lot of dubious Viking kind of evidence um, because a lot of stuff around misinterpretation of indigenous artifacts and culture, they tended to be dragged off and turned into Viking stuff. So um, through a lot of complicated permutations, I ended up at the the ROM in their archives looking at... um, the uh, Peterborough petroglyphs, which had been in Ontario, which had been attributed to Vikings. And I didn't, um, I actually, in the end, I, did, I didn't even use Peterborough petroglyphs in the dissertation, I focused on Dighton Rock. Um, but between the Peterborough petroglyphs and and the, mate- and and the material that was in the ROM regarding them, uh, there's Beardmore materials in two real key collections. One overwhelmingly is the is the ROM, the museum's old files. There's just massive amounts of material. The other is there's some important material actually as well uh, at the Trenton University Archives, which doubles up sort of around Peterborough Petroglyph stuff. So I happen to just have two different leads into the story in the course of doing other work. And it's one of those things where I, you know, I I had a look at the material. I realized how rich it was and also realized that what little I had read about the hoax, which tends to get addressed in any, you know, in a lot of works on pseudo-archaeology or things like that. I realized there's a lot more here than what's ever been written. And I just thought, you know, if I ever get a chance to come back to this stuff, I'm going to come back to this stuff. So, probably around 2015, I, it was after I finished my, my PhD, I started going back into the files again and started trying to map out. Exactly where this stuff was. And it's one of those things you pull the thread and you start to realize that because Beardmore was such a big scandal and hoax, you know, in, in, in certainly in the area of study, it's comparable to Piltdown Man it was for, you know, for archeology, span for, I mean, for paleontology, that if you have something that important, a lot of people are going to have opinions about it. And so There was just a wealth of material in the 1930s and 1940s in different collections that I had to go find and and look at. And it drew in all these other figures that I didn't anticipate were going to be involved in the story. So that's sort of the long, roundabout way of how did I get into Beardmore.
0: In what ways did the Beardmore case, as you argue, demonstrate how scholarly authority can uh, uh, metastasize into abuse of authority when the power afforded to professional hierarchies and networks goes unchallenged?
1: Yeah, I think for people to understand that, we'll give them kind of the quick and dirty explanation of what Beardmore was. Beardmore uh, arose with a guy, it started with a part-time prospector in Northern Ontario around the area of what's now Thunder Bay, a guy named Eddie Dodd, who claimed that while doing um, blasting on his mining claim uh, east of Lake Nipigon, uh, after all the dirt settled there, in the hole in the ground was a sword, an axe, and a crumbling shield with a shield handle, and the story was kind of you know different people heard it in the 1930s, um, but finally, it the, the word about this stuff got to Charles Trick Corelli, who was the esteemed founding director of the archaeology division of the Royal Ontario Museum. He was a great Egyptologist. He had an outsized reputation in in archaeology, especially in Canada, but he was internationally known. And so, um, Curley saw this stuff in December, 1936, he got Eddie Dodd to bring this stuff down to the museum and he bought it. He bought the materials for about 500 bucks, about $7,000 today. And Crelly accepted the stuff as genuine. Um, so within about two years, when some serious questions started to be raised about Eddie Dodd's story, um... The story is much more complicated than I can really hear, but essentially, Charles Kirk really dug in his heels and decided he was going to defend this thing. This was his purchase, and and he was just it wasn't going to get away from him. And the way things metastasized and were abused is because when you have someone of this, of the power of Corelli, who was such who was so powerful within academia and in the museum world, but also to the general media. Um, nobody wrote about anything to do with Charles Triccarelli without calling Charles Triccarelli to check it out with him. So when the allegations of a hoax started coming up and maybe a newspaper reporter would phone him, he could just say, well, that's just a pile of rot. Um, We've looked into all these things, and let me assure you that the stuff is completely genuine. Um, And in more insidious ways, his allies in the academic community were able to really throw a lot of you know, threw a lot of roll, roll, a lot of logs at the feet of of the people that were trying to investigate, and you know, and, and unfortunately, remarkably, the two people that were really going up against Corelli were not academics at all. They were, uh, they were a uh, school teacher in Ontario, uh, a vocational teacher in high school in Kingston, Ontario, and he teamed up with um, uh, you know a fairly esteemed. Um, geologist, T. L. T- Thomas Leslie Tanton, T.L. Tanton, who worked for the Dominion Geology Survey in Ottawa. And so it was this kind of pair of amateur detectives working on their own with their own time and money, um, just trying to find witnesses and get statements that were trying to build the case against the acquisition. And so you have a very unusual situation with a hoax, where I think most people think when there's a hoax, it's somebody clever comes along and, you know, it's either art or something like this and they fool the experts. And then you get an even smarter detective that comes in and exposes the hoax. And, you know, the day is saved and the museum or the art gallery is, you know, whatever problem they had goes away. And in fact, it doesn't work this way at all in, in Beardmore. What happens in Beardmore is that it's very hard to, to separate Who's the victim and who's the perpetrator? Because, you know, at a crucial point, really Corelli and the museum become actively complicit in however much they might have genuinely believed there wasn't a case. They become complicit in defending the acquisition and suppressing the case of, of, of a hoax. So they're the victims of the original, you know, acquisition. But they're also the perpetrators of the, of the of the case, so that's what makes this case, I think, really interesting because it raises a lot of issues about how power is exercised in these. You
0: know, so let's uh, first trace uh, from Eddie Dodd to uh, Corelli. How did uh, Dodd's explanation for the provenance of the Beardmore relics? Um, what was his explanation, um, including that middle claim north of Lake Superior? And how did he meet Teddy Elliott as well as Ned Bur- Burwash? And what roles did they play in dating the discovery, um, leading it to the Kensington Stone and then introducing uh, him uh, or actually orchestrating the sale of the uh, purported relics in 1936 to uh, ROM archaeology director uh, Curley? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, first first thing I'd say is that, 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 and again, that doesn't fit the pattern of, of, of hoaxes, is that I don't think Eddie Dodd ever wanted to sell the relics. That's the strangest thing about the the case. You know, we think about the museum being the victim and Eddie being this, you know, this scandal guy. Eddie kind of played a little fast and loose with a lot of things in his life. Um, but I think why he wanted the relics was that they were a conversation starter. Um, how he got them, we can get into it. But what he really was trying to do is attract money um, an investment into his... He had three mining claims east of Lake Nipigon, and the middle one was the middle claim. Uh, and that was where the relics were supposedly found. And so I think what Eddie was doing starting about 1934, when he started carrying these things away, he either was carrying them around in a, in a custom wooden case showing people, or he'd have them at the house wrapped in paper or a towel, and he'd have people over and show them to him, is that he was trying to get people interested in the middle claim. Because... Um, you know, if you got if you got their eyes kind of fixated on on these y things, um, people paid attention to you. And once you had their attention, Eddie could say, "Well, now let me tell you about the middle claim. Let me tell you about the essays I've been getting and how great the promise of gold is on the site." Um, and and so I think that's what was really important for him. So a guy like Ned Burwash, you mentioned, Ned Burwash was a leading government geologist in Ontario. He ran the uh, he ran the classes for prospectors in uh, he, you know, throughout Ontario through the winter, he was actually a ch- he was also a childhood friend of Charles Corelli. They had gone to school together. It's a very very small world, Canada sometimes. So Burwash did see them in one thousand, nine hundred and thirty-four. Again, it was that kind of classic. Met Eddie on the street. Eddie has the case of stuff. Takes him to goes to his hotel. Shows him, and then he writes a letter. He phones Corelli. Corelli for some reason loses track. He doesn't. He can't remember quite why he didn't follow up, but he doesn't follow. So what happens is Teddy Elliott comes in. So Teddy Elliott is the school teacher and his wife is from Thunder Bay. um, And he had taught school in Thunder Bay. And after he was he moved on to jobs elsewhere, he still went back every summer. And he was also another part time prospector. You have to remember, it's the Depression, it's the 30s. um, And Gold had had really jumped in price uh, in nineteen thirty four because the US went back on the gold standard and overnight the value of gold went up seventy percent. So suddenly gold is really, really interesting for people. So um, so Teddy Elliott was was visiting, you know, where he'd been doing some prospecting and he had he was taking a train back to Thunder Bay and in the middle of the night somebody lit a fire on the track, which is which was a, a, a sort of a signal system people used. And the train stopped and on board comes uh, comes Eddie Dodd because Eddie worked for the railway. That was his main job. So he's, he gets on near his Beardmore claims and then they've got a whole night together just talking as they go through the forest. And um, finally, as Elliot recalled, he'd say, he finally said, for the sake of keeping the conversation going, he said, do you ever find anything unusual on your claim? And that was the button that Eddie was waiting to have pushed. And he said, strange that you should say to me to that, say that to me, young man. And then he started telling him the story. And he gave him his address and he didn't know how whether to believe him or not. He'd been drinking that, you know, on the train and he decided not to go visit him. This was 1934. But in 1936, he's back in the summer and he decides to look Eddie up and he sees the materials, writes a letter to Charles T. Curelli at the museum. And then once Curley sees the drawings that, that he sent, that's when Eddie gets brought down to the museum. Crolley sees the materials and buys them. And that's when it's kind of become a runaway train. And I think Eddie at that point sold them because really the, he was out of telling stories. He wasn't getting any money for the claims. It's the depression. He's got li- less and less railway work as time goes on. And 500 bucks, $7,000 is still $7,000, you know, in today's money. And that was a lot of money for Eddie Dodd. So he sold it. He asked to be remained anonymous. And I think he just thought he was going to take the money and disappear. And stuff could go on display and... He just move on to something else in his life. So in
0: 1937, how and why did the museum assistant director uh, Thomas McIlrath, who I recently learned when was, the, when was one of the one of the first men to grant Canadians higher degrees in anthropology, how did uh, McIlrath uh, produce a tour de force of conjecture that turned the Beardmore discovery site into a good, obvious place for Norsemen to have camped en route um, from uh, Lake, Lake uh, Nipigon to Lake Superior? Why did uh, uh, Corelli turn to other scholars for typology?
1: Okay, so the where Thomas McElraith comes into it because they just said he was actually the first professor of anthropology, full professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto. He was actually, I think, might have been the first in Canada. Anthropology in this country, my country, was really in its infancy. He was also the curator of ethnology at the museum because the museum and the and the and the university were pretty much one and the same entity. They were united and they're just they're still just across you know right next door to each other so there was a lot of cross appointments uh you know in positions so after curly bought them in december 1936 he had to do he he didn't put them on display right away he had he knew he was going to have he called it the greatest find you know you know archaeological find in america which went north america and he was right because you have to remember that at the time there was no physical evidence for the Vikings in North America. We didn't have Lansell Meadow site in northern Newfoundland until 1960. And they were kind of, you know, really dubious runes being found every now and then. Um, the Kensington Runestone in northern Minnesota was around. Uh, being debated, but nobody had any physical evidence of Vikings, and so if he had it, it was pretty extraordinary. It really was going to be a big deal. So right away, anybody in academia, you know, in the scholarly world, was going to say, "Well, what's the provenance of this stuff? Is it is it archaeologically safe? Where did you get it? um You know, what about the site?" And of course, there had been no dig. It was just Eddie saying he'd blown up, you know blown off some dynamite and there they were in the ground. And he was a little vague about exactly how many years earlier it was. So as part of the process of setting the story, you know, in a defensible way, Crowley sent Thomas McElroy north to go to the site uh, with Eddie. So the two of them went out to the site, the middle claim, in September 1937. And and, and McElroy's only spent a day there. And McElroy's hadn't he was an, he was an anthropologist. He was a cultural anthropologist. He was not an archaeologist. He may have done, he might have had a bit of experience, maybe in the middle in, in the Near East when he was studying in England, but he had done no North Americanology. Never done site you know site investigations at all. So he was really a bit out of his league. And he goes into the site and he wrote a five. He came, when he came on the way home on the train, he wrote a five page. He typed out a five page report. And reading it, it's quite remarkable because you could. I think I think McElraith was under an enormous amount of pressure because Curley was his boss. And Curley really expected this stuff was authentic and he expected, you know, support of the authenticity. So what you end up doing is reading McElwray's trying to rationalize how this stuff ended up where it is, which really didn't make a whole lot of sense archaeologically. And there was no archaeological evidence that you could investigate because the site had been, you know, mined, you know, Worked as a mining claim for a couple of years. So, but so basically, MacRuth kind of talked himself into thinking that there was a portage. You know, the idea was that the Vikings came, you know, through up through the through the Arctic, came down into Hudson Bay, and they made some epic journey, you know, from Hudson and James Bay through the river systems all the way to Lake Nipigon, and then they kind of wandered off into the bush and ended up in this Blackwater River, um, which is really this little rivulet that makes no sense at all for getting anywhere. Um, But McElroy's kind of rationalized out this, well, you know, this is kind of where it would be. And, and, you know, if it was going to happen, this is where it was going to happen. And so by the time he got to the end of the five pages, which were never made public, he'd kind of sort of talked himself into a position of of, the, of plausibility but the bottom line he said in the end of his report was that you know it, it you know it, it all really came down to whether you considered Eddie Dodd an honest man and he said I do I think he's telling the truth so a lot of it really just of this story really just came down to reputations very critically so and because a lot of the story also becomes a matter of of class of who's you know, Who's a reputable person? Who's a laborer? Who's, you know, who's from a good family? Who's a government man? All these things insinuate themselves into this story, which ends up having nothing to do with, you know, an archaeological site and the quality of the archaeological evidence. It becomes becomes a matter of reputation. So. McElroy kind of starts that by saying, you know, it's, do you believe Eddie Dodd or don't you? And he's, I believe Eddie Dodd, you know, and even over time he said, well, maybe Eddie massaged the details or, you know, kind of gilded the lily a bit, but his essential story is true. He really did find this stuff where he said he found it.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. In Janu- So in January 1938, uh, why did Roy Beamish consult uh, Eli Ragutt and James Hansen to assess Beardmore Providence? How did the Beamish story ignite the controversy over Dodd's relics and the defense by J.H. Uh, Fleming with a corroboration by John Jacob?
1: Well, what happened is that Corelli was still doing his... He was still working on his provenance stuff. Um, He hadn't put them on display yet. And in December 1937, he wrote letters to about a dozen archaeological experts in the world on his materials. And he, he didn't... I think it's important to get this aside in. He didn't tell them where he found it. He just said he had the contents of a Viking grave. This was part of what happened too, that this site suddenly became a grave in Corelli's official mind. Even though there was never a body, there were never bones. The idea was that the, the body got dragged away from by animals or something and left the burial armory behind. Um, so he was still getting that work done and waiting to hear back from his experts when... Things things blew up. The word leaked in January into the press that, that the ROM had this material. And actually, there had been a couple earlier leaks, but for some reason, they just never gained traction. But in January 1938, it got out in a big way and made the press, you know, picked up by the wire services. And almost as soon as it was picked up, there was a fellow named Eli Ragat who was another trained guy like Dodd uh, who was living in Winnipeg and he had been a roommate of Dodds and he just thought this was the funniest thing he'd ever heard in his life. And Regat, um, the media went to Regat and he said, Eddie didn't find those things in a mining claim. You know, Eddie found, I found those things in the basement of a house in Port Arthur, Thunder Bay, where I was living with Eddie that we were renting that Eddie was renting and I was a tenant. Um, the whole thing was just the stupidest hoax he'd ever heard of. And it was just totally typical the sort of thing Eddie would do. Um, so it blew up. And so Roy Brimish, Beamish was a local um, was a local uh, reporter in Thunder Bay. And as soon as, you know, the Ragot story got out, then Beamish got on the case and he was a good young reporter. And the second clue that came up besides Ragot was that the house that he lived in that they had lived in was owned by a Norwegian immigrant named James Hansen, and so Beamish got a hold of Hansen, and Hansen said, "Yep, I had a house on Macker Avenue. I rented it to Dodd. Um, I did have relics. I got them from a from a Norwegian immigrant named John Jens Block, but John Block, who had come. He'd been attended with me. Uh, I had loaned him some money. Uh, I took this. I took the relics as collateral. And then when he didn't pay me back." Um, I kept the relics and I put them in the basement. Uh, John Block moved on to Winnipeg and then he moved on to Vancouver and he died in 1936. So you couldn't verify it with Block. But this is what Hansen said. And he said, I left the stuff in the basement of the house because I moved out to an apartment that in a house I was renovating and I didn't have room for all this stuff. And then I rented this house to Eddie Dodd. And then when I went over there one day, I realized the relics were missing and I told Eddie and Ragged to find the stuff and get them back to me. So there was some corroboration from Hanson for Raggett's story. So the the story, so the issue then became who's telling the truth. Is it Eddie Dodd um, who said these guys are a bunch of liars? Um, I found this stuff in 1931, spring of 1931 months before I moved into a, uh, into 33 Macker, which was you know, several months later. And that was true. The records prove that at least that that's when he moved in. So how could I have stolen them from a house I wasn't even living in? And Ragat is just telling stories. Um, and the other, so it was like, do you believe any Dodd? Or do you believe Eli Ragat and James Hansen? And... Again, it's complicated. But Ragged for, a lot of, Ragged, for a lot of confounding reasons, kept changing his story. I think he kind of gilded the lily when he first told it. Um, he backtracked a lot. He claimed that the stuff that was at the ROM was not the stuff that he saw in the basement. Then he would kind of change his mind. Hansen's story kept changing. Sometimes it was, they came, you know, this material came in alone. Sometimes he had told people that, um, he had actually brought the material from Norway. Another version of the story people heard was that um, that uh, Jens Block actually dug them up in the basement of the house that that Hansen owned. So therefore, they were always there and they really were Norse relics. Um, what really becomes clear with Hansen is that Hansen is in a terrible position. A, he doesn't want to admit he has this stuff because one of the key issues is any Norse material that left Norway after 1905 was removed illegally. You couldn't take this material out without an expert permit for cultural materials. And they just didn't give them out for stuff like that. Um, and then he also came under tremendous pressure from the, from the Scandinavian community in Thunder Bay, who were very proud of the fact that Here's the Norse in northeast, you know, in northwestern Ontario. Where they're, you know, they're here in America, in the Americas, 500 years before Columbus. And then you have Hansen come along saying, "No, this is, these are my stuff. This is this is the story is all wrong." So he was really ostracized by the by his own community, and he started trying desperately to find a way to back out without losing his own credibility. So the story that Hansen came to was basically that. Um, I really did I really did get relics from 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 yen block from this loan um, but he' is, he had never been to the Royal Ontario Museum the museum wouldn't bring him in to show them to him so he would kind of do this I'm not really sure those ones are mine but I know that I got stuff from from block and I don't know where the stuff is now so he was trying to walk both sides of the street and let the community still cling to
0: this idea that this was really So how and why did uh, Jim uh, Curran launch an October 1938 investigation into the Beardmore relics that actually, actually precip- precipitated one of uh, Roget's uh, uh, reversals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jim Kern was a really interesting guy. He's actually some of the material that was at the Trent University Archives because he was a newspaper publisher. He was actually a really good editor. Uh, he owned the these Sault Ste. Marie Daily Star. He bought it, turned it from a weekly into a daily. He was quite a respected guy in, uh, in, in, you know, in daily newspaper publishing. And he kind of got his teeth into this thing and he – he came to the Thunder Bay area uh, in uh, in September 1938, and he started investigating Eddie's story. Uh, and he also started writing a whole series about the Norse in North America. He just convinced himself that Vinland was in the Great Lakes and he had all this odds and sods evidence to support this idea and the main thing he did is he put together this kind of ad hoc investigative committee with a judge in Thunder Bay and a leading doctor and they got affidavits from various witnesses that said oh I really did see the stuff in Eddie's house in 1930 or 1931 or whatever and so Curran really made the case and, and 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 really crushed the credibility of Hansen and Regat. And Regat was his own confounding issue because Regat was reversing himself and then not reversing himself, but he was signing affidavits and saying, you know, because he came down to the museum in September before they went on display, looked at the stuff and said, this is not the stuff I saw in the basement. Um, So once, once Curran had got through all these his, his affidavit collecting and, he and then he wrote a book about it in 19, in you know in the following year called Here it was Vinland. Um once Curran did all this legwork he kind of cleared away all the controversy fundamental controversy in the public eye so it allowed the museum to at last bring them out put them on display in October 1938 in a, you know in their custom case and Corelli to say This stuff's authentic. It's all been proven. You know, these, these other fellows, their stories just don't hold up. It's like a drunk brakesman and a, you know, a seller owner of dubious, you know, dubious reliability. So Curran did a huge, huge favor really, without meaning to be a favor, but without Curran, it's hard to see how this stuff eventually would have gotten on display.
0: For our listeners, uh, can you address the circumstances of the Dominion Geological Survey's geologist, T.L. Tanton's critical examination of the Beardmore relics? How did uh, John Block's promissory note and James Hansen figure into this investigation? And why was the discovery date so significant for the inquiry?
1: Well, Tanton was important because he was a, he was a very respected scientist um, and with a lot of curiosities beyond um you know, beyond his geology, as important that was, he he was big on astronomy. Um, he, some of his, one of his big reports on geology in, in the northwest of Ontario actually included a section on on archaeology as well. So we had a curiosity about that stuff, and so he had heard before the stuff got to the ROM with Teddy Elliot, that Teddy Elliot had seen, you know, had visited Eddie Dodd. Um, it's a complicated path, but we'll just leave the path aside. Just basically what happens is Tanton writes Elliot at school and says, tell me about the stuff you've heard about. So Elliot, who's a believer at that point, writes him back and tells him the story that he's heard from Dodd. And one of the things that Dodd talked about was that after when, if the blasting was that the sword, of course, was broken. It was in two pieces, and Eddie said that he broke the sword trying to get it out of the ground because the sword was fused with the rock. So Teal Tanton is a very good geologist, and he knows that you can't have a thousand-year-old sword fused in, you know, in geological materials hundreds of millions of years old. He he immediately decided, or suspected, and. and properly concluded that there's something really wrong with this story. It really does sound like a hoax. Um, but he thanked Teddy for the, his time and his information. And then and then, Tanton just sort of quietly started keeping a file. Um, and what's important, too, is that Tanton, with the D- Dominion Geology Survey, the Dominion Geology Survey in Canada also um, was affiliated with the National Museum. And it was also, the Dominion Geology Survey was also the National Anthropology Program. Um uh, and Diamond Jeunesse, a very respected anthropologist and archaeologist, and his team of archaeologists were all in the DG at Geology survey. It was in the building. They all shared, you
0: know, like, you
1: know, their offices were down the road, you know, a hall from each other. So Tent had access to some very smart people. And one of the things that's interesting and complicated about this story is that Diamond Jeunesse and the people around him. Obviously, very early on at the National Museum had big problems with the R.O.M., the Royal Ontario Museum's, you know, find. Um There were some smart people there that really thought this is not adding up. But politically and culturally, they didn't want to take, you know, a public stance against the R.O.M., but they were willing to work very quietly and give T.L. Tanton, as a geologist, any support he needed. And eventually, when Tanton started working with Teddy Elliott to investigate, the people that were in the, the, in the, you know, in the museum and in the DGS, including, including William Wintemberg, a very good um, archaeologist who dealt with indigenous materials, they became very helpful. But in a purely background way, they could never be publicly associated with the investigation. So Tent was the one that really, you know, kept the suspicions alive. And, you know, after after Corelli finally published in the spring of 1939 in the Canadian Historical Review, and maybe we we're going to get to talk about that anyway. But after he published an article, that was very vague and very sweeping about details. Um, Tanton got a hold of Elliot. They hadn't been in touch in two years and just said, what do you think of the story? And then they started discussing it. And the important thing at that point that Tanton had was that he had made contact with James Hansen and Hansen had produced at least evidence that there really was a loan between him and, and um, John Block. Now there was nothing in the paperwork for reasons I can't get into that said, Oh, there's a collateral of, you know, of Viking relics. But at least Hansen's story on that fundamental level was holding up. And once Tenton and Elliot started talking a bit, within a couple of weeks, Elliot was really persuaded that he had become embroiled in a scandal, and that he had inadvertently, you know, thinking he had helped the roM with this great find. had actually become, you know, an accessory to a hoax and now it became Elliot's determination to overturn the hoax, to expose the hoax for what it was. And so he and Tanton began working together to make that happen.
0: So let's talk about the, about uh, the uh, archaeology director's, the uh, long awaited statement on the Beardmore discovery, that art- article in the uh, March 1939 issue of the Canadian historical review. You describe it as full of gaping holes and the rounding of factual corners. Um, can you give us some examples of, of, uh, uh, to substantiate your assessment, and um, also, maybe if you can, address how uh, Curly finally convinced GRF Prowse of relic provenance.
1: Okay, so, uh, you know, the, the basic story was not very long. It was maybe 1,200, 1,500 words, and Curly had a very brazy, easy style, and he just managed to construct this plausible story of, of uh, you know, of Eddie's find. But when you kind of drill down a little closer and... Wanted to get hard information about okay when did he find it, um, when did he show it to so and so, you know, getting down to nitty gritty of dates. Um, why, you know, why is this article not dealing, you know, more properly with Hanson's claims? Um, there was just a lot. It, it just was really an inadequate explanation from a scholarly point of view of what was the support for the claim that this was. I mean why are you even using the words Viking grave when there's no body and you're not saying that? Um, And one of the important things with Corelli is uh, that people didn't know was, as I said earlier, he had written these various experts. Um, It gave him a standard letter of what he had found to, to finish up the provenance work. And because he just didn't have resources on Viking materials in the museum. And he wrote these various experts in North America. And the letters were all the same, and he didn't tell them, he just said he had the contents of the Viking grave. He didn't even say where the grave was. So um, so these people started answering him back. Some of them were archaeologists, and this is the stuff that just didn't get into the article, which is really important to understand. And some of them weren't our archaeologists, some of them were like philologists, they were experts in, you know, Norse literature or something. And what they were all doing really was was going to a standard Peterson's guide to Viking armor arms and armor that was published about nineteen eighteen. And they were just looking up the weapons typology based on this little photograph that Crowley sent. And this again gets to the issue of Corelli's you know, standing. If Corelli wrote you and said, I've got the contents of a Viking grave, well, then you just assume he's got the contents of a Viking grave. These things were all found together. So in those letters, as they started to reply, some of them refused to answer unless they, he told them where he got the stuff and he didn't reply to them. So those, the, right away, he's not, he, he's not being you know, fully cooperative with the experts. Um, but some of them, when they looked at the material, um, could see, I mean, a really significant problem, and the significant problem was that the sword, and it's a, it's a pretty I've I've talked to archaeologists today about it, to, to, you know, to do my own typology verification, was what was called an M type sword, and it was you know a ninth century standard simple sword seen into the early tenth century, and then the axe that was found with it was um, also called an M type, but that doesn't mean they're the same. It was just a the typology used for axes, and it was a late. But the M-type axes were made really only started to appear when the sword was just falling out of favor. So you had this weird thing of how do you have a grave where, to make it simple, you have a sword that was made from 850 to 950, and you have an axe that was made from 950 to 1050. What are they doing in the ground together at the same time? They, I mean, there's a very big provenance problem. And the people that were advising Corelli, not knowing how or where it was found, um, but accepting there was a grave, just said, well, you know, maybe, I guess it's a really late sword for a really early axe. And the other problem is, is that nowhere in the typology study Peterson did, there was a single example of, and, and most of the Viking stuff in the world was known from all of these Viking graves. and you know, in Scandinavia, no one had ever found this sword and this ax together in the ground at the same time, in the same place. So this was something Crelly just didn't address. He just said the experts are all agreed that this, this stuff is from about 950 AD. So no one that he spoke with, if he, I mean, he had, you know, corresponded with, if they had known the material was actually blown out of the ground in Northern Ontario, I think would have had anything to do with the conclusions of so it was really grossly inadequate as 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 any kind of scholarly explanation of what this material was and it's and and it's one of the
0: greatest supposedly one of the greatest archaeological find in the in north america and it has almost nothing to support it in 1939 how did T.L. Tanton persuade Teddy Elliott, who actually had earlier endorsed the authenticity of the Beardmore relics, to join his investigation and support James Hansen's account, as well as Carl Sorensen's very uh, compelling photograph? Um, I'm interested in the photograph. What were the results of their correspondence with additional scholars?
1: Okay, so we got a couple of people going around there. One of the things, as i said, you know, literally I did say that—, that... That I, I think it was when Tanton said, "I've got documents for the loan that Hanson said he made." That's when the shoe dropped with 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 Elliot saying, "Maybe Hanson is telling the truth. Maybe there's something you know we can get to a core story that's believable with Hanson." And and the other thing that that Elliot did was what he what he noticed was at the time of the of that eddie kept changing his story about when he found the materials in really significant ways um sometimes he found them in the spring of 1933 sometimes he found them in the spring of 1931 um sometimes he found them and left them at the side of the mining claim for two months and then took them home sometimes he said he left them at the mining claim for two years and then took them home nobody knew that when eddie sold the stuff to the rom that he signed a statement saying that uh, um that had had the uh the 1933 date at it, not the 1931 date. So he had been shifting the dates around quite a lot. And the main problem with Eddie's story was that between 1931 and 1933, he was living in a house owned by James Hansen. And he was trying very hard to get his acquisition of the relics away from Hansen's house. And and, and when, when Tanton started dealing with Elliot, Elliot went back to all his notes and he was a very thorough guy. He was a very, very good historian for a guy Really, he really was first class in what he was doing. Uh, he found 34 different mentions of the date. Um, and then when, when, uh, you know, when the newspaper publisher Curran got involved, it was obvious that 1931 is a problem. So between Curran and Corelli and, uh, and Eddie Dodd himself and Eddie's friends, um, they agreed to backdate the story to 1930 based on supposedly that Eddie's son was sick at the time and he remembered that. So by moving everything to 1930, it was a full year, 16, 18 months before he was anywhere near a, a, a property owned by James Hansen. So Elliot could see that these dates were being shifted around a lot. And he could see that pattern of, of, you know, of vagueness and avoidance. And that was, that
0: was pretty important. How and why did Lawrence Burpee endorse Teddy Elliott's paper for the Royal Society of Canada, given that the paper was dropped from the subsequent transactions by Stuart Wallace? In addition, why did CHR editor George Brown accept Teddy Elliott's review of Jim Curran's book?
1: Okay, so... You know, in this area, uh, they realized they once Candon and Elliot started working together in spring of uh, of 1939. um, Their first effort through Elliot was to try to interest the mainstream press, and they got absolutely nowhere. Um, Probably pretty much every time a pitch was made, that the press would contact Corelli. Corelli say, that's a bunch of rot. Um, we've cleared up this whole thing. and Or they would be told that, you know, your is libelous, so we're not going to run with that. And it all really came down to Corelli's authority. But um, T.L. Tanton was a leading member of the Royal Society of Canada, which was the leading scholarly group in a bunch of disciplines, literature, history, geology, you know, the various sciences, um, social sciences and whatnot he was a very big in the jolly division but he had you know, he had friends and associates across the system so they had the idea that let's do a paper for the Royal Society and if we do a paper for the Royal Society you, um, because Elliot wasn't a member of the Society you could, pre- you could present a paper though at the annual meeting if you had a sponsor as, as you know a member as a sponsor uh, and then once it was presented it would be eligible to include it in the transactions the annual the annual report publication of the leading, of, of the papers presented that year. And that would put it into the documentary record, all the evidence that they'd been pulling together. So they needed a sponsor. And it's informative that that no one at the at the Dominion Geology Survey, as I said, like Diamond Jeunesse was a member, William Wintenberg was a member, the the, uh, the archaeologist. Wintenberg was willing to help in the background, as was Jeunesse, but neither of them would come forward and serve as you know, as a sponsor of the paper, it was just it was just politically just wouldn't work. So they got William Burpee. And Burpee was a great avocational historian, I guess you would put it. I mean, there was a lot of people in the 1930s, especially in Canada with a professionalization of history that were working in a variety of different fields, didn't necessarily have a Ph.D. in history, were teaching. And and uh, Burpee was a leading civil servant. He was Canada's secretary on the International which was the Canada-U.S. agreement uh, that deals with issues of the Great Lakes. So that was his day job, but he was a very esteemed member of the Royal Society of Canada. Uh, he did work with the Champlain Society as an editor. So it was really important that Burpee stepped forward and said, "Yeah, I will put my name to this, and I will, you know, I will see to it that it's presented at the spring meeting." So that was that was a really critical step. And once Burpee came forward. Um, it became much more difficult for Canadian historical review, which was a publication, still is, of the University of Toronto Press. And I've said before, University of Toronto and the museum were in, completely intertwined. And and Curley had an enormous amount of authority uh, you know, over these things. Um, there was not peer review that we have today. Curley, with his article in 1939, just basically ordered... The, you know the press to run it um in the next available issue and they did so the editor George Brown uh, was going to have to and curl they're all going to have to deal with this problem of burpee and and uh, and this presentation and what does happen is we talked about uh you know collusion and 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 interference is that Stuart Wallace was another leading figure in, in the historical field he was the chief librarian of the University of Toronto um, he was a big supporter of Corelli, and he was the uh, honorary editor. He was really the effective editor of the Royal Society's transactions. And when Corelli heard that this guy, that Teddy Elliott, uh, was going to present this paper, he, th- through their imaginations, he asked and requested, Stuart Wallace went to the R- Royal Society and said, look, we need to have, basically, it was like, we need a rebuttal. The museum wants its position, you know, stated that day. So the the Royal Society basically agreed you could do that, but what happens when Elliot goes up to make his presentation? there's not a rebuttal. What happens is Stuart Wallace just just gets up in front of him but first, and he chews up about half of his presentation time, giving the the museum's position on the on the relics and the lunch break was coming so elliot had to kind of do this mass rush through his presentation sputtering away he felt he just nobody probably understood half of what he said i think he was actually fairly well received but the consolation was at least that well it'll get in the transactions i mean that's the important thing but what happens is in the fall um Realize that it's not in the transactions, uh, it's actually been taken out of the transactions. And so the excuse was given, which most people seem to accept, was that we're now in a wartime, and there had been a war tax put on publishing and the society had to cut the budget on the transactions so they had to tighten up the number of articles. So it was agreed that only papers by members of the society would be published. Um, But really, when you read the correspondence that that Wallace wrote with the section head of Section 2, which was where Elliott's paper was, it's very clear that Wallace was manipulating this process. And he was really working very hard to get the paper out of the
0: transactions. And he was successful doing that. It was not publishing the transactions as people expected. So for our listeners... Please describe the—this uh, is kind of the mysterious circumstances of your book—the uh, 1941 disappearance of John Jacobs, the uh, deaths of uh, Ragat and Carl Sorensen, and then around the same time uh, emerged uh, Shana Block Hastings as a pivotal source in the investigation.
1: Yeah, A lot of people met untimely, unfortunate ends of this story. So quickly, John Jacob was sort of the key guy for Corelli. He was, you know, he was sort of an amateur birder— up in Thunder Bay, he he had a he had a job for a while as a game warden, uh, and he had been you know helping the zoology division of the of the Royal Ontario Museum with bird stuff, and he how complicity was with 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 Eddie Dodd's story is still very difficult to follow, but he became he became the man you with know, the other, the government man from a good family who corroborated Dodd's story. He had a story of how he went to the site after the discovery and he actually saw a rusted impression in the stone, in the rock, you know, in the underlying, you know, strata, which showed where the sword had been. And this was very persuasive to people and which Curly would repeat all the time. Um, and so Jacob was like a key guy and but nobody could get to Jacob nobody could interview Jacob and he, he wrote a he wrote about three different statements for Corelli um and he helped change the back dates the discovery to 1930 as well and I think when the heat started to get on Jacob Jacob was a pretty slippery guy and then the shock was that um uh he uh he supposedly drowned uh in Eva Lake uh, west of Lake Superior while well, he was investigating a site for a mining company he went off in a canoe and uh, there was still some ice in the water and his hat and coat were found on shore but he was never found and Tenton for one TL10 was very suspicious and because there never was a body found in fact I I did the I did the archival research and that was never a death certificate issue for for her for him. Uh, so he clearly made himself disappear. He had some other problems going on in his life with the police as well. Um, but Tanton was convinced he was still out there somewhere. So Tanton would be write, was writing him letters at his house in Toronto, not expecting that he would ever reply, because he never replied to anything they said him. But he wanted to let him know that I'm back here in the mortal realm watching and waiting for you. I know you're out there somewhere. So that was one of them. Carl Sorensen was the... Uh, Vice consul for Norway in Thunder Bay because there was a substantial you know, community there, and he initially um, publicly completely dismissed James Hansen's story that he that James Hansen had no credibility. He signed affidavits to that effect, um, but Elliot Teddy Elliot kind of got to him and made him think harder about about Block and how Block would have brought these materials because again the listeners don't know one of the key things with block was his father andrew schrader schroeder brock was a well-known illustrator in norway and painter and some of the stuff he did a lot of stuff he did was viking scenes and and the elder block actually even owned viking relics so the chain of possession is still i mean it's still never not 100 percent, but it's fairly clear that when John Block emigrated to Canada. He brought, you know, a handful of these relics that had belonged to his father, and you know, brought them to the, you know, brought them to Thunder Bay with him, and that's how they ended up, you know, eventually going to Hanson into his house. So Sorensen started out being very negative about Hanson, no credibility at all. But Elliot got to him and made him think harder about Block and why he would have had these why no, no one would have known that he had them because it was illegal to take them out of the country, why Hanson would never admit to have having had them because he knew it was illegal for them to be out of the country. And so Sorensen changed his mind, at least with Elliot. He decided that what he was onto something and that that Dodd had been telling a tall tale. And But had never admitted this to Corelli. And when Corelli found out that he was, you know, you know, he changed the story. Curly wrote him and said, what is this you're talking about now? I mean, surely, you know, this whole thing is silly. And Sorensen didn't answer him. And really tragically, Sorensen took his own life. He killed himself by, of all things, drinking household bleach. It was a very bad way to go. So he was lost as a witness as well. The final one was Eli Ragott. Uh, Regard in the middle of the winter december 1941 i believe he was working on a, a freight train because was his you know he was yeah. a train conductor and brakeman um and they were adding train cars but you know on the run through through manitoba and he slipped and fell was run over by his own train so he was killed as well so there's yet another voice that was lost in, in these things the last one you mentioned was shanna block hastings well, um shanna block hastings was critical because she was john block's widow uh, and through a lot of sleuthing, uh, Tanton and Elliot, with help from others, tracked her down. She had remarried. She was in Vancouver, and through her, they were she was they, they were able to determine that I mean, as much as she seemed to be telling the truth, that yes, in fact, her her late husband she didn't wasn't married to him then. She married him in Winnipeg after he left Thunder. But there were these relics. She knew about them. And she also knew that he had loaned them. He'd used them in a loan. And according to Sh- Shauna Hastings, he had always hoped to get them back someday. But they just fell on hard times. And he never had the money. And then he died in Vancouver in 1936. So her, her recollection was an important corroboration of the whole chain of possession from um, you know, from the Blocks in family in Norway to John Block and then Thunder Bay, that, you know, then the Hanson loan and how they would have ended up then eventually getting to, uh,
0: to Eddie Dawn.
1: So, and to her credit, she never angled for any money for them. Um, she was quite upset that they had been stolen, uh, which is Hanson's story, and that Hanson had let them go the way he did. So, yeah, she was a big break.
0: If possible, please briefly discuss Teddy Elliott's September 1941 uh, Canadian Historical Review uh, survey of the evidence on the Beardmore relics and the debates as well as rebuttals contained in said issue. How and why after this case, or excuse me, how and why after this article did the Beardmore case divide into two camps in the post-war years?
1: Eddie, um, what happened after the the article failed to appear in the Royal Society transactions is that some fairly senior scholars um, backing Eliot uh, basically pushed the Canadian Historical Review, which had published um, Corelli's original paper, Article, say, look, you've, you, you know, this is this was an important paper. It's unfortunate it didn't appear. Elliot's paper didn't appear in the Transactions. It needs to appear somewhere that you know students of history can read because this information, whether you agree that it was hopes or not, the evidence needs to be presented and debated. And that and that forum in their mind was Canadian Historical Review. And so that put George Brown, the editor, under an enormous amount of pressure because. You know, as i said it was a university of toronto publication um currently had enormous sway so what happened was is that um basically brown went to Elliot. He, you know he looked at the paper he wrote he would present it at, at at the royal society and said this really reads like kind of like a lawyer's brief like a case for the prosecution i want the judge's case i want you to write both sides of the story the for and against um, and that, you know, Corelli and Thomas McElrace will give away all the assistance you need. So it was, he really wasn't sure. Titan didn't think he should do it at all. They, they thought, you know, there was an alternate plan of going to a U.S. publication. Um, but, but Ellie decided that if anybody was going to tell the story, he wanted to be the one to tell it, and he wanted to weigh the evidence, and he felt he could do a good job of showing both sides, and he could manage, you know, thing but it was a fairly extraordinary request because you know he really he was answer, he had to answer to corelli and he had to answer to McElraith. who was you know i i think elliot liked mackle but McElraith couldn't agree with him on anything about Eddie Dodd or about the evidence you know over the problems with the case so he did his best he wrote the article and then in the spring of 1941 um, brown came back to him and completely changed what he had asked for he said I, you know, basically he said, I don't think you know the hoax case is a very good one. Um, certainly, you could mention it in some way in the story, but it seems clear to me that the Dodd acquisition, you know, the, the you know that story is 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 really the story. And then, you know, this is what I want you to write. Elliot was not going to do that um, at all. There was no reason for him to have to do it, and Tanton didn't want him to do it, and they were going to sort of actuate plan B, which was to go to an American scholarly forum. And I think at that point um, Brown panicked realizing that I mean a journal in the U.S. could bring out this article that really implicitly criticized the Canadian historical review. So we went back to him and said, basically said, okay, you can do what you want. Um, Write what you want to do. Um, And and Elliot's condition was that he would do it, he would give the both sides, but he was not going to have this thing vetted by anybody associated so he wrote the article. He did a, did a very good job. He did a very good job of laying out the evidence. It wasn't as clean as what he had done for the Royal Society, um, but you know he laid out all the stuff that was problematic. Uh, uh, and then at the very eleventh hour, the thing was literally about to go on press. He's in thunder He gets he gets a uh, you know he gets a message from um, from Brown, and Brown says that he's given all of the material to Charles Correlli because Charles Correlli wants to write a rebuttal in the same issue, to his article. And at least, I mean, this was a complete, you know, beyond the bounds of of proper scholarly, uh, you know, behavior. Um, The only good thing you could see of Brown to sort of salvage his position is he said to to Elliot, you can have, you know, a rebuttal to the rebuttal. You know, if there's anything you know, one you, you can answer to what Mr., you know to Doctor what Doctor Carelli is saying, but he had literally about a day to do it, and he had none of his materials with him. But he, I think, Carelli made a mistake in pushing his way in, because when he did so, he opened the door for Elliot in his comments on Carelli's comments to be much more forthright about a lot of the evidence that uh, that pointed towards a hoax. So you know, in the end, that's what we got. We got this 1941 article that was first part is Elliot's survey of the evidence. Then you get Corelli's riposte and then you get Elliot answering to Corelli. So, I mean, overall, uh, you know, Elliot did a wonderful job. It's really quite impressive what he managed to do in that, you know, in in the space and what the crazy (laughs) limitations put on him. Now, after the war, um, you know there was this sort of two camps came along and i i think you know to try to keep it simple basically scholars in the field were still very reluctant to you know cross you know the, because it was the royal Ontario museum and because it was charles sacrelli who retired in 1946 um still still treated with kid gloves and you know, keeping, you know, keeping the plausibility of, you know, of the find open. Um, even after one of the key things was Johan Bronstad, who was with the Danish National Museum, was looking. he was brought to North America to look at all the ev- purported evidence for the Norse, including the Kensington stone and the Bar stuff. And it was Bronstad who figured out one really critical piece of evidence. And that is so-called shield handle that, that Eddie said he grabbed his handle and tried to pull the shield out of the ground. The shield crumbled. I mean, one of the problems in these earlier things I mentioned with you know with Corelli talking to the experts is that there are no shield, there are no metal shield handles. You know, they're just done in the record because Norse you know, shields didn't have metal handles in the back. So what was it if it wasn't a shield handle? So what Bronsted figured out was that it bore a suspiciously striking resemblance to something called a wrangle, and a wrangle was a sleigh rattle. That pagan Norse would attach to the harness of a sleigh, you know, to the horse, and the idea was that it would jingle as you rode along through the forest, and it would drive off the evil spirits as you as you traveled. And in Norse burials in eastern Norway, male burials, um, a wrangle would be tossed into the grave uh, to help you along into the afterlife. So. This is a big problem for an armory burial, you know, of a guy in east of Lake Nipigon. What is he doing with a sleigh wrangle? It's not a sword. It's not a shield handle, um, and it really should have just killed the the, the find right then and there. But but uh, for reasons I don't, you know, it's hard to fathom. Bronsted just let them get away with it. He pointed out the problem. You know, he pointed out what this thing was, but. You know, if it's not a shield handle, then Eddie, then a key part of Eddie's story just falls apart. There's no shield. There's no shield handle to grab, pulling a shield out of the ground. Um, so, you know, the the, the the despite the skepticisms in you know after the war, it stayed alive. You know, really until 1956, until the, the story finally fell apart.
0: Lastly. Can you please explore Edmund Carpenter's 1961 idea of association with institutional power and the consequences of his criticism of A.D. Tushingham?
1: Yeah, so t- Carpenter's really important because he was a bit of a rock star anthropologist. He was an American. He wasn't part of the you know, the, the system of coming up to the University of Toronto. He didn't have any allegiances. Uh, he was very much a star of a hot new field of media theory working with martial arts. Chloe and the medium is The Message Guy, He was a University of Toronto professor. And just as a background for people first to understand, is that, is that Carpenter had a, an office in the museum because he, there was a short space at the, at the University of Toronto, and he would walk by these things every day. He walked by the Beardmore case every day. And just in 1953, in 1953, the Piltdown hoax fell apart, um, and there was a book written about it. And, and Carpenter reviewed the book uh, for, the, for the Toronto Telegram, and he was convinced that Beardmore was another down. It was just a clumsy hoax that he couldn't believe had gone on for this long. And, and, and um, Carpenter was a very, very experienced archaeologist by that point as well. And so it was really Carpenter that revived the, you know, the, the hoax case and drove it forward. And to keep things short for people, it, it all fell apart in 1956 because of Carpenter's insistence. Um, so a couple key affidavits came forward about Eddie Dodd, who was dead by then, who had died a few years earlier. And one of the most important ones was from Eddie's son, Walter, who was supposedly 13 at the time of the find, had been with his dad. And Walter was kind of an itinerant guy living in Toronto in a boarding house. And he came forward and said, I was forced to sign an affidavit against my, you know, basically because I was afraid of my father. He was my step, he was an adopted son. Um, you know, and he, he just corroborated the whole story of the stuff having been in the basement of the house. So once Walter Dodd, you know, came forward and said, my dad made this whole thing up, that's when everything fell apart. So for Carpenter, what was really important to him was the behavior of the institution. And this is what really scandalized him. Um, he felt that A.D. Tushingham, who was the director who succeeded Corelli, um and the and the people that worked in the museum around them who kept up the pretense he felt of the authenticity of the relics had succumbed to what he called affiliation with institutional power. That it was more important to protect the good reputation of the museum and the memory of Charles um than it was to get to the to the historical archaeological truth of the relics. Uh, and he was deeply offended by this. And when and and as he told in, in you know, in, in recounting, um, you know, at one point when the when the controversy was you know erupted again in 1956, he went on television with Tushingham, and before they went on, Tushingham went to him and said basically the you one know, that he wanted him to understand that what he might think personally about the authenticity issue, and what he felt he was required to say as a director of the museum. Um, were two different things or were not necessarily the same thing and that's when um you know carpenter really lost faith in, in you know in the reliability of the staff and uh yeah and that and that was a, i think that was an important point he made it was this idea of affiliation with institutional power and unfortunately if you were, if you wanted to defend the reputation of the museum, the, the thing you should have done is actually open the case up, looked at all the evidence and said, you know, what? we bought this. We thought it was X. Turns out it's Y. You know, we're going to relabel them. You know, they are Norse society relics. They're just not from Northern Ontario. That's how you defend the reputation of, a, of an institution. You don't do it by covering it up. And you don't doing it by looking the other way. So that's what Carpenter was talking.
0: Well, thank you for being on the show today, Doctor Hunter. I have uh, one uh, last question. What can we expect from you next? Are you going on vacation? or Are you working on other projects or projects?
1: I'm actually working. Yeah, I'm working on a. I'm working on a book right now. Uh, it's 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 a nice different change because I do work on the side as a landscape artist, and um, I'm writing a book for, again from McGill Queens. I'm working with McGill Queens again, and I'm working on a book on A. Y. Jackson, which a lot of Americans viewers may not know, but A.Y. Jackson was a leading landscape artist in Canada, a founding member of a group called the Group of Seven, and I'm looking at his early career up to the point where he became a soldier in the First World War and then became a war artist. And so he went through the experience of the First World War as both a soldier. He was wounded in 1916, and then he came back again as a war artist and went back basically into the combat area to paint and describe what was there visually. Um, so it's 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 been a nice it's been an interesting change, to say the least. Um, but again, you're still dealing with. It's funny. I mean, there, there's figures around the Royal Ontario Museum at the time and culture in Canada that that, that are kind of there in the Beardmore story. And then you start into something like this, and you think it's totally different. It's like, oh, I've already met this person already. You know, I met them doing that book, you know, in that project a couple of years ago, and here they are again. Now they're just off into World War One. So it's uh, it's it's great. And I hopefully I hope to finish that by the end of this year. And then maybe 2020, we see
0: it on the, on the public. Well, you look forward to your book, um, especially a World War I component. Um, so this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of both Dr. Hunter and the New Books Network, the Archaeology Channel. His book is Beardmore, The Viking Hoax That Rewrote History, from a, um, last, published last year from McGill, Queen's University Press. I hope tune in next time.